Thank you, Mandy and the team. Uh, I'll tell you, it is always refreshing to come and be here and worship and sing and get together as a body. It's just meaningful. I think we all appreciate that maybe more than ever this year. I saw some faces this morning that I hadn't seen yet uh, in months and months. So I know for some of you, it might be your very first week back. And I just want to say, isn't it good to be here together? I think that's uh, something we can all agree on here in you know, it's been a very interesting week. We're going to talk about this some, and uh, it's funny. We had a conversation uh, in the back in the green room before the worship service started, and we always walk through the order of the service, and we pray, and um, Derek Frenzel was talking about how someone came up to him this week and said, how you doing? And he didn't know if that was a political or a personal question. <laughs> I think that's kind of how we've all been uh, thinking about this week. Um, Lloyd and I decided months ago that we wanted to take a few weeks within the Sermon on the Mount series to do a deep dive on the theme of the sermon. Now, the theme of the sermon is the kingdom of God. That's the unifying theme that pulls the, the Sermon on the Mount together. So a lot of people just think of the Sermon on the Mount as this, you know, almost this eclectic, um, you know, cl- uh, collection of, of things that Jesus taught. No, it has a theme to it. And Jesus is very clear what that theme is. In fact, it's not just the theme of his sermon. It's the theme of all of his teaching, the kingdom of God, or sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes just the kingdom, but it's the same concept. So last week, Lloyd started us down this path. We're doing a three-week mini-series within our broader series on the sermon. And so if you weren't here last week or you didn't watch online, you're probably wondering, what in the world is all this stuff behind me? Well, this was Lloyd's message last week. I'm going to add to it this morning, and then Lloyd is going to finish it up next week. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to tell you this is what the, the, the Bible says about the kingdom. In fact, one way to understand the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is to talk about the kingdom. And, you know, by God's sovereignty, the events that we've had in the last week and week before, and I'm sure the weeks to come, uh, this is an important theme for us to dig into. And so we are going to apply it. We're going to apply it. We're going to talk about the election and the results. We're going to talk about that this morning. And in a way that I pray and hope, and I have certainly been praying, is rooted and grounded in in the, the transcendence of God's will and the transcendence of this theme of the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do first is I just want to overview briefly what Lloyd covered. I want to encourage you to watch it if you missed it, because I certainly can't cover all of it. He did a wonderful job of explaining the kingdom of God, and it starts over here on the left side of the board. If you think about a simple definition of God's kingdom, it's God's place, or sorry, God's people living in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. That's the idea of the kingdom. Now you see these two circles. You've got heaven and earth, the blue and the green circles, and they're one. When God created the, the heavens and the earth at the very beginning, the Garden of Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. In other words, God's space and human space overlapped. And that's what that is symbolized there with those two uh, circles that are uh, overlapping each other. So Genesis 1 is the kingdom given. Now you move through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The kingdom lost is Genesis chapter 3. That's the fall. The kingdom promised is Genesis 12 and on where God calls Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to call you out from your nation and I'm going to make you a new people. I'm going to make you the people of God. Then we have the king or the kingdom of the kingdom rather, or or the, the reign of the king the reign of the kingdom, this would be the monarchy in Israel's history under King David, who was the greatest and best king and the king that, that the prophet said there'll be another one like him that will rule on the throne forever, but a number of kings here in Israel's history. Then you have the kingdom assured. This was primarily the time of the exile and the prophets, the kingdom assured. Then you have a 400-year silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
That's a long time where we don't have any scripture from that particular period of time, but God was still at work. God was still on the move. There's no question about it. Then you have the kingdom inaugurated, which is the arrival of Jesus Christ, the true king. And of course, the message of Jesus, the very first thing he said when he begins his teaching ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's inaugurating it. He's starting it. It's arriving under his rulership. Then we have the time of the church, the now and not yet of the kingdom. And what I want you to see this morning is this is the part of the story that we are in. Now, you see the circles again. There is an overlap, and we'll talk about that overlap between heaven and earth, but they're not yet back again uh, totally whole. And then, of course, the kingdom consummated. I'm running out of room to walk over here, but this is the final stage of what is still to come. So this arrow represents kind of where we are right now. Uh, This is all past to the left and all future to the right. So this is a way to understand the Bible through the theme of the kingdom of God, which is the theme that Jesus taught over and over and over again. Now, what I want to talk about today is a particular element of the kingdom of God, which is the people of the kingdom. I want us to answer the question. If this kingdom is so important, who are the people that are a part of it? Like, who are the citizens of the kingdom? Because to have a kingdom, a kingdom implies a couple of things, doesn't it? It implies a king. It implies boundaries of a space or a rule or a reign. It implies a people, going back to our definition, God's people, God's place, God's rule, God's blessing. Well, who are the people of the kingdom? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to go back to the whiteboard, and I'm going to start off here, and I'm going to label, I want you to help me, actually, it's an interactive part of the message, label who the people of the kingdom are in each of these stages. So let's start with this first one. This one's really easy. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Who are the people of the kingdom? Shout it out. Yeah, Adam and Eve. So I'm going to write this on here. Now, I want you to think about this, and and I know this may be hard for some of you to see, but just know I'm writing Adam and Eve right down here at the bottom of this chart. Uh, It's interesting to think about it this way. Adam and Eve were the only people. Now, God designed the human race to be something distinct and something special, something unique in all the creation. We'll talk about that later. So God said, look, the people that are to occupy this kingdom are human beings. They're Adam and Eve. But when the kingdom was lost... Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the kingdom. And then God calls another people of the kingdom. Who does he call out in Genesis uh, chapter 12? We already mentioned it. Abraham. So who do you think the people of the kingdom are in in this stage of Abraham and then on uh, as that kingdom begins to develop? Who are the people of the kingdom? How might you say that? Good. We'll get to the Jews in a little bit. Uh, that we, they weren't called Jews back then, but that is where it's going, absolutely. This is a family. Abraham's family. So we're moving from Adam and Eve in the first couple chapters of the Bible. Now the, the people of the kingdom are Abraham and, and Sarah, but I'll just call Abraham and family. Because, of course, they go on to have a son and the family begins. Now you get to the part where this is formalized and it's under a king. So who are the people of the kingdom under the rule of David and Saul and Solomon and all those other kings? How might you describe that? Yeah, exactly. The Jews, another way you might say it's the nation. So I'm going to call the nation of Israel. God is saying, you are my people. And we have all the Old Testament law that, that defines the rule. Uh-oh, it's hard to write on the whiteboard, by the way. Nation, I forgot my eye. The nation of Israel is now the people of God. You follow how this is going? Now, we get to this section here where they're in exile. And what happens to the nation is it's 
scattered out. And there's a formal word for that, the diaspora. Have you ever heard of that word? It just means the scattered. So at this point in time, I'm going to say the people of God or the scattered. They're the Jewish people, but they're scattered throughout the nation. So we'll put that in in quotation marks, the scattered are the people of God during this time. Then you get to the inauguration of the new kingdom. Who are the people of God in the gospels? Who do you think they are? Who are the people of God in the gospels? Say it again. Good. That's right. Specifically in the gospels, we're going to call them followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. So these were the disciples, uh, the 12, of course, but they were other followers as well. Followers, whoops, followers of Jesus. Now, pause right here for just a minute. This is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the very beginning of the sermon? It says Jesus, you know, he, he went on the mountain, he sat down, he called his followers to him, and then he taught them. And all the words we've been studying the last several months were written for followers of Jesus. These are now the people of the kingdom. And originally it's just Jews, right? Jews that have put their trust in Jesus. But as that expands after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you have Acts, you have the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is on. The now and not yet, who are the people of the kingdom now? The church. That's exactly right. So we're moving from the followers of Jesus to the church. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing? Yes, that's the same thing, but they're given this name you know, the, the, those, uh, the assembled ones, etc. And now we live in this church era. Now, here's what I want you to see. In our text that we're going to cover today, which I'll, I'll explain in just a minute, Peter, who's writing this text, is going to draw a direct line all throughout the people of God in the Old Testament to us. This is us, the church. And I want you to see how all of this is connected. If you can understand that this morning, that's the most important thing of the message today. So from Adam and Eve to the family of Abraham, to the nation of Israel, to the scattered ones, the, the, the diaspora, the followers of Jesus, the church, this diagram explains our identity. Now open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me give you an illustration to explain what I think Peter is doing. Um, Peter is writing to the church and not just one particular church. You know, oftentimes in the New Testament, you have, you know, uh, the, the, the Paul's epistles to the, you know, Ephesians or other places. It's one particular church. Peter is writing to the church, all the churches in the, in the known world. Peter was the leader of the church at that time. He was a very significant figure, obviously. And so he's writing to the church. He's writing to both Jews and Gentiles who are now united as a new people. And this is very important. You think about two very different opposite ends of the spectrum. The Jewish people, oh, we're the people of God. The Gentile people, oh, we're not the people of, of Yahweh, God. What Peter is going to do very deliberately is he's going to tie these both together and say, you are the people of God. And he's going to, even more importantly, connect the church which is the combination of Jews and Gentiles all the way back through this whole story. It's like that scene from Moana. Anybody seen Moana? Raise your hand if you've seen Moana. All right, all right, well, like a big hand in the background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, love Moana. She, her, her grandmother takes her into this cave because Moana's confused about her identity. Is she going to you know, be the chief or is she going to be the, the voyager? You know, she wants to be out at the ocean, but she feels called. She needs to stay at her people, et cetera, et cetera. Her grandmother takes her in this cave and she says, you've heard all the stories of your ancestors except for one. And she sends her into the cave and says, go find out who you are. And Moana goes into the cave. What does she find? Ships. 
that have been used by her people for generations and generations and generations to, to be voyagers, to explore. And she has this epiphany and she runs out and says, we were voyagers. She has an identity and it's the identity that propels her behavior. Now, this is what Peter is doing in 1 Peter 2. He is calling on this very diverse people group and he's saying, you, you are a people. And, and not only are you a people, you're the people. You're the people of the kingdom. And this story is your story. Even if you don't have Jewish blood, you are now a part of the people of the kingdom with the line, the dots connected all the way back through the whole story. Now, if you understand that, then you'll understand this text a little better. Let's take a look. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You see what he's doing here? He's speaking identity into them. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see this? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, he gives four descriptors. I'm gonna write those on the board and then we're gonna go, go through them briefly one by one. The first thing he says is you are a chosen Race. Each of these words are very powerful. We'll unpack them just a little bit. The second thing is you are a royal priesthood. Just imagine a Gentile hearing this for the first time. You know, are you kidding me? I'm a, I'm a priest? What are you talking about? You are a holy nation. And then the last thing he says to them is you are God's people. You know, he, he says it a little bit longer than that. He says you are you know, a people. Uh, where is it? Um, People of for his own possession, but I'm just going to abbreviate that God's people. So these are the four things that I want to unpack in this text. Let's talk about chosen race. Remember last week when Lloyd taught, he talked about Abraham being called out and he said, why did God choose Abraham? Just because God wanted to. Because it was God's will, because it was God's plan. Do you know who else God chose? You. Not because you earned it. Not because God saw that you were going to be some wonderful Christian person. He chose you because he chose you, because he wanted you. You were chosen to be a part of this people. You were chosen to be a part of the story. It's like Moana was born into this identity. She didn't choose it. And she understands the identity. Oh, we're voyagers. Oh, we're voyagers. You see, I want you to have this moment this morning. Oh, I'm a person in the story. Oh, I'm part of the people of the kingdom. That's me. Chosen race. Now, race is a very interesting word. It's, it's genos in the Greek. And we still use that word or, you know, all kinds of times. But it, genos just means a, a, a group. Right? It's um, a group that shares a common characteristic, or you know, if you're applying it to people, it's a common ancestry. Uh, the Bible elevates your membership in the kingdom of God above any other racial or family identity that you have. Another way to think about it, according to the New Testament, your primary ethnic identity is part of the people of the kingdom. It's not, well, I'm, I'm American, or, or, I'm, or I'm white, or I'm black, or I'm European, uh, descent or I'm African descent or Asian descent, your primary ethnic identity is in this story, is in that you're people of the kingdom. And the, the, I know that sounds a little weird to us, but this is exactly what Peter is saying. He's choosing these words to you're a chosen race, race, 
guys. He's using that word intentionally. Royal priesthood. Let's talk about that one. Um, Most of us don't think of ourselves as priests. Even me, as a pastor, I never call myself a priest. For obvious reasons, you know, Lloyd and I and the other pastor, we're not priests. You know, we're not, that's, not our, that's not our tradition, but you think about this word priest. Um, Peter has in mind the Old Testament idea of priest, of course. Peter was Jewish. He, he was writing to, to people who were familiar with the Jewish story, both Jews and Gentiles. And a priest is a mediator. In the Old Testament, a priest is a mediator. A priest goes between God and the person. So someone brings the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice. The person doesn't offer the sacrifice on the altar. They hand it to the priest. The priest kills the animal, lays it on the altar, and makes the sacrifice. The priest intercedes for the person. The priest is the mediator. How significant. What Peter is saying here is, is you are to be the means by which people come to know God. Now, in Christian theology, and, and, and Peter would have said this too, but you know what Paul said in 1 Timothy is he says there's one mediator. One mediator, the man Jesus Christ. But who are we? The body of Jesus Christ. We represent Jesus Christ. So we are the means by which people find the mediator, the true capital M mediator, which connects them to God. We are a royal priesthood. Royal just means the kingdom. We are, we're priests of the kingdom. We are priests of the kingdom. We are mediators, lowercase m mediators. There's only one true capital M mediator. We are to connect people to Jesus Christ. We are to declare the mediator. Holy nation is the third. Um, Holy is a misunderstood word. When you hear holy, most of us think of pure. Holy actually means separate. Holy means distinct for a a sacred use or for a a, a holy or, or a a spiritual purpose or a sacred uh, purpose. Uh, nation is the word ethnos, similar to genos, but now it's very specific to a people group. Ethnos is a, a people group. So holy nation, you could translate a set apart people group. So we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set apart people group. And then finally, a people for his own possession, God's people. I love verse 10. Once you were not... A people. Now, were they a people? Well, yes, sure they were. They, they, they were, they were um, unbelieving Jews, or, or they were um, Greeks, or you know, they, they were a people of other things. But, but what he's saying is, in the, in the way that really matters, in your truest identity, once you were not a people, now you are a people. And notice he says, singular, a people, not a collection of peoples who all believe in Jesus Christ. A people, race, nation, You see what he's doing here. It's very, very powerful. Um, If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the story. And and by the way, sometimes when I sit down and talk to people and and ask them, tell me your story of, of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes they'll say, I've always been a Christian. And I know what you mean. I know what, when when I hear that, I know what you mean. You mean I was born in a Christian family. You might even mean there's never a time that I remember not believing in Jesus. And by the way, praise God for that. That's wonderful. But theologically, you are not born redeemed. There was a point of time in your life when you were lost and God found you. God rescued you and you believed in Jesus. 
Now, you might not remember the specific moment or the specific day. Some of you do, some of you don't. Maybe you're just like, oh, it's probably somewhere in this season. That's fine. You don't have to remember a specific day, but there was a point in time, and God only knows for, for some of us when that exactly was, when you were lost and God rescued you, when he gave you faith to believe and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that means you are his. You have been brought into the circle of the people of God, the people of the kingdom. You've been brought into the circle of the people that God has chosen throughout human history, those that are most intimate with him and his plans. Finally, it's important to know, by the way, that when I say finally, it's not finally of the message. You know me too well to to know that. But finally, for this part of the message, it's important to know that these four descriptors are identical phrases Peter is using from the Old Testament. He's quoting from various places in the Old Testament where the scriptures were speaking identity into the nation of Israel and the scattered ones and the family of Abraham. So so what, what he's intentionally doing is he's connecting them back. And this was so important for this new people, this church, that he's saying you're actually not new people at all. You're connected. You're connected. You're the people of the kingdom. Now, if I could summarize what we've learned in verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to move on to verses 11 and 12. Here's how I would summarize it. The people of the kingdom are those who are called out from the world to be used by God in the world. We'll put that on the screen. People of the kingdom are those called out from the world to be used by God in it. Um, think, Think about this idea with these two words, purposeful distinctiveness, called out, separated, that's what holy means, for a purpose. So you get this idea of this this missional purpose going on. Now, I'm gonna leave that on the board. Actually, put that back on the screen if you don't mind. I just wanna just drill that in people's brains. And I wanna walk back through our story and I want you to think about this. People called out from the world to be used by God in it. Adam and Eve, called out from the rest of creation, distinct from, separated from. They're the only thing in all creation where God says, you are made in my image. So are we just another animal? Not according to the word of God. Called out from the world to be used by God in it. And God says to Adam and Eve, you are to co-reign, you are to co-rule, you are to represent my image. Called out from the world to be used by God in it. You see this? Abram, who God changed his name to Abraham, called out from the world. He was in Ur worshiping pagan gods, no God, non-gods. God called him out from the world to use Abraham in it. He says in, uh, in, in Genesis 12, he says, through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm gonna use you, Abraham, for my purposes. Think about the nation of Israel. Why were they given the laws that made them so weird? Can't eat this food, gotta celebrate this, can't do that. They were weird, folks called out from the world to be used by God in it to show the rest of the nations, oh, this is what it looks like for, for a people to trust the one true God. Now, of course, they, they, they failed that, that mission. You're going to say each of these failed the mission in a sense, but God's sovereignty prevails, you see. How about the scattered? Oh, there's this beautiful passage in Jeremiah 29 where the people have been uprooted from Jerusalem, and they're in Babylon. And you know what God says to them through the prophet Jeremiah? 
He says, I want you to work for the good of the city where you are. And and, and you're going to find your blessing in their blessing. You see, I want you to remain distinct. I don't want you to lose your identity, God is telling them in exile. But because I, I, have, I have called you out from the world and I'm going to use you, and even in Babylon, even when you're scattered, the, 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 the diaspora. How about the followers of Jesus? Guys, Jesus hand-selected his disciples. They were fishermen. You know, one was a tax collector. They were doing other things. What does he tell Peter? He says, listen, lay down your nets. I'm calling you out from the world. I'm, I'm going to use you in the world. You're now a fisher of men. You see this principle? And finally, the church. We are meant to be called out from the world for a purpose, purposeful distinctiveness. And that takes us to our final two verses. Look at 11 and 12. Here's what it looks like for us to live this principle out in the church age. Beloved, Peter continues, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's talk about a few things here and then we'll we'll give you some principles to kind of wrap your mind around here. Sojourners and exiles. Such an important concept for us to know that that this is true of us. Remember, we're, we're, we're in that part of the story. This is us, guys. We are sojourners. That that means resident foreigner. This isn't our home. We are exiles. He's comparing us to the the scattered, you know, right there, that part of the story, the the exiles. We, We are, in a sense, people who are living in this place, but knowing it's not our true home. Some translations translate the word alien. It's a good translation, you know, not in the little green men alien, but, but the, the foreigner who is here, but it's not his or her home. This is not our native land. Being a part of the people of the kingdom is your primary identity. Not American, not Southern, not, not, not from Nashville. I mean, these, these are things we can use to describe ourselves, but it's not our primary identity. Not I'm, I'm white or I'm black or I'm Asian. Um, uh, not even your, uh, I'm a Georgia football fan, right? It was a bad day for us yesterday, but not your sports allegiance. It's not our primary identity. Um, I love what he says. He's like, you know, therefore, you know, because of your identity, and then verse 12 um, or verse 11 still, he's saying, uh, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which, which wage war against your soul. What he's saying there is he's saying, listen, There is an intentional purpose to disrupt your calling and distinctiveness as the people of the kingdom. And so I want you to stay separate from that. Guys, I think we're about the only ones that that I hope are are consciously making efforts to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's what it feels like in our culture. We need We need to. Why? Because they're waging war against our soul. There's no life in them. There there seems like there's life in them. Passions of the flesh sound fun, don't they? Oh, no. Oh, no. There's no life there. And those of us that have been down those paths, we know that. There's no life there. Peter is saying, stay distinct from that. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Be different. Be different in a very positive way. He's saying, you're called to be strange, but not for the sake of strangeness. You're strange for a purpose. What's the purpose? 
straight from the text, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, our purpose is to embody something beyond ourselves. It's to embody the kingdom of God. Uh, it's a kingdom of life and it's a kingdom of flourishing. And we are called to represent that, like be a little embodied glimpse of it. Yes, preach it. You know, I, I don't think you can actually truly proclaim the gospel without words because gospel in essence is news. But you also have to embody it. You also have to make it visible, make the kingdom visible. And as you do that, it's in contrast to an opposing kingdom, a kingdom of death and decay and, and passions of the flesh that's destroying people. We are to be strange. So let me give you three principles and we'll talk about them and apply them. Here they are. We'll put them on the screen. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and walk through all three of them. So let's put them all three up there. Remember uh, who you are. Engage with purposeful distinctiveness and rest in God's plan. We'll just, just leave those up basically for the, almost the rest of the time. Um, I love what Lloyd did last week. I'm going I'm to redo it this week. Heaven and earth overlaps in the person of Jesus Christ and in the body of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be where God's space and human space overlap while we're waiting for Jesus to return to make all things new and a new heaven and a new earth and heaven will come down and rest on earth and that's Lloyd's sermon next week. In other words, we are this, guys. If you are a follower of Jesus, you live right here in the overlap of heaven and earth. And what Peter is telling you is you are to make this visible on the earth. You are to embody little glimpses of what it looks like to obey Jesus, to obey God, to, to live out the kingdom values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about this a few weeks ago, when, when Jesus says, Matthew 5, 13, you are, you can put this on the screen, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Do you see what Jesus is saying lines up with what Peter will say later, of course, because Peter's getting all this from Jesus. What, Peter, what, what Jesus is saying is, if you live here, if you just look green, so to speak, to use this color, and you're not representing this on the earth, you're, you're no longer distinct. And what's the purpose of salt? It's preservation. It's distinctiveness. So I shared this with you before, and, and it continues to be something that I want to talk about. I, I, I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we are losing our saltiness. We're losing our distinctiveness. We are in a, a world right now that's so polarized, right? It's either this or it's that. We're actually called to a third way. We're actually called to a higher allegiance. We must engage with purposeful distinctiveness. I want to call out this, this last one too. So remember you are, who you are is all about your identity. You're, you're actually not home here. You know, it doesn't mean you can't find beauty. I, I wrote an email this week, sent out on Friday, where one of the things I was reflecting on is how much I love this nation. I do. I love this place. I love the land. And sometimes I forget. Sometimes I get a little too cozy. I'm a sojourner here. You're a sojourner here. Remember who you are. Engage with purposeful distinctiveness is all about being different enough to be salt 
Don't lose your saltiness. Third way, rest in God's plan. Um, You don't have to put the verse back on the screen, but look back down at verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is just a little reminder to the believers that Jesus is coming back. The story's not done yet. The the day of visitation is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. This is a reminder that God's got this. Jesus is coming back to make everything new, to establish a kingdom of God where God's people will be in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. That's what's to come. It's a return to, to Eden, if you will, but now the whole earth this is what we have to look forward to. Okay, let's just apply this really briefly. Um, it's been a significant week in our country, no question about that. Um, listen, this, this message this morning and the whole theme of, of the people of the kingdom is way bigger than the election. I, I want you to understand that. But it does apply to it. And so here's my question for us. How do we live as people of the kingdom and as good citizens of this nation? Because we are called to do both, and Bible talks about both. We're going to reference these three principles and just walk through them and apply it to this moment in time. And, you know, my, I'm, I'm not going to go political here. That's not what we do. We're, we're, we're Bible teachers. But we're also meant to help us apply God's word to water cooler conversations and family dinner conversations, etc. So let's walk through these. Remember who you are. When you engage in conversations about this election, however you feel about it, and and we've got strong opinions on various sides and some that are just apathetic and just frustrated and all these kinds of things. When you engage in conversation in person or online, remember who you're representing. Remember what you're representing. We are a people of the kingdom. Now, people pay attention to how Christians engage political issues in our day maybe more now than ever. And Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And by the way, he's using that word Gentiles now to, to refer to, to those outside of the kingdom, you know, the, the outsiders. It's not, not a, a racial thing anymore. This is actually the, those that are not in the kingdom yet. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your mission supersedes everything else. That's what Peter is saying. So remembering who you are is a mindset that will shape your speech. It will shape your interactions around this. Remember who you are. Secondly, engage with purposeful distinctiveness. When you remember that your highest allegiance is to the kingdom of God, you'll find that there will never be a political party or a candidate who is running on that platform. They're not meant to. They're not meant to. What I believe is true, and and this is where I want to stretch us a little bit. If you want to compare us to any of the Old Testament phases of the kingdom, although we're we're distinct from any of them, but what I think Peter is saying in 1 Peter, and it's echoed in other places in the New Testament, we, we are more this. We are more exiles, not this. Sometimes we think, oh, we're we're meant to create the kingdom of God in the United States of America. That's not the calling. That's not the calling. So you'll never, you're never going to find anybody on any election ballot that you're going to say, that person is the kingdom of God, that person will usher in the kingdom of God, or, or that person represents the kingdom of God. Now, you might evaluate and say, this person and this platform, how do they 
best in body and all these kinds of things. That's what makes this complicated. But I just want you to know that what we've seen in this election is Christians with identical theology, and, and I'd even say love for Jesus, have come to different conclusions. It's been divisive even within the church. And, and I'm here to say, I don't think every Christian should say there's only one way to vote on this. And you know, some of you may struggle with me saying that, but I believe that to the core of me. I know dear men and women who I love deeply and are committed to the scriptures and committed to loving Jesus who, who feel differently about this election than, than I do. And here's my, here's my point, though. I'm not saying who you should support. I'm saying we need to engage the dialogue with respect and honor. Uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem illustrated this very, very well in the last two weeks. Uh, John Piper wrote a blog article, one expressing what he was going to, who he was going to vote for or not vote for. And then Wayne Grudem, and by the way, these are both theological giants that I love. Wayne Grudem replied back and said, here's exactly the reasons why I, I disagree with my friend, because they're friends, John Piper. And then Wayne Grudem put a PS at the end of his article, and this is brilliant. After I finished writing this article, I sent it to John for any comments. He replied that I had represented him fairly, and he assured me that he counted me as a dear friend. He also pointed out how I could make one of my arguments stronger. Now listen to this last sentence, guys. This is what I'm trying to say, okay? I think that only someone with a strong confidence in the sovereignty of God over all history would do that in the midst of a serious disagreement about the future of a nation. That's what I'm trying to say. When Peter wrote this letter, he was taking very different people and saying, you've got more in common than you have different. You are the people. You are the chosen race. You are to be unified in your distinctiveness. And don't think they agreed on everything, guys. Don't think they had theological, robust, healthy conversations about what was going around politically. These are all good things. Finally, rest in God's plan. This uh, particular election has been accompanied by more fear and concern than any that I can remember. It's probably true for, for most of us and maybe all of us in the room, and that's true on both sides. Let me remind you, Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember who's in charge. He's not sleeping on the wheel. And he, he wasn't four years ago when that election happened, and he's not right now. He's not sleeping on the wheel. He's not grown tired of us. He's not changed his mind about what he's going to do. His plan is right on schedule. Do you believe that? This year, 2020, is likely not the end of the world as we know it, actually. We, we feel like maybe it is. It's likely not. History would tell us we've been through many things like this. And yet, even if it is the end of the world as we know it, praise God, because we are strangers and alien, aliens in this world. I want to lead us in prayer. And then at the end of the prayer, we're going to all sing one last song together before we go. And, and I'm going to ask you to stand up for this prayer. I want us to pray unified as the people of the kingdom, knowing that there are some of you in this room that, that, that politically are in different places on this election, and some of you in the room that, that even that fact bothers you in some way. 
And I want to call us to transcend that. And I want to call us to pray together. We are the people of the kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this prayer is for you. We're going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray that God's kingdom would come. That's what we're going to pray. All right, so let's bow our heads, and I'll just lead us in. You can quietly, silently uh, pray along uh, with, with me here as a corporate body. Father, we do pray for the church, and not just here at Fellowship, but the church universal, the, the church that is scattered all throughout the world. And, and there's no nation, um, Israel included, no, no other place right now that, that is the nation of God. That, that's, that's not the period of history that we are in. We are all in nations that are a mix of values that represent things that you would want us to and values that represent things that you would not. And in the moment of history that we stand in, Father, we recognize we are sojourners. And, and I, I pray that we would lean into that. I pray that the church would be united in love and obedience to your desire for us. I pray that the church would be serious about the mission that you've given us. I pray that the church would be purposefully distinct that we would be known by the love and grace and wisdom that characterized the one whom we follow, Jesus Christ. May we be more like him than we ever have been. Second, Father, we want to pray for our nation. Would you grant calm in the hearts of those who are disappointed and upset and afraid? Would you, would you bring unity to work together for the common good of, of these people? Would you allow our elected officials at the local level, the state level, the national levels, would you allow them to lead with wisdom, with justice, with character? And finally, Father, we want to pray for your kingdom to come, for your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the coming of the day that the prophet Zechariah saw when he said, the, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. We pray for the fulfillment of Micah's words when he wrote, For the, the day will come when we shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And, and, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor even train for war any longer. And we pray for the day prophesied by Isaiah the prophet when he wrote, The increase of the government of this coming one, this, this Messiah, Jesus Christ, would have no end, that he would establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Father, may your power and your wisdom and your grace and your love accomplish this. In the name of our King, Jesus Christ, amen. Let's worship together.